All right, what is going on, everyone? Casey Adams here. Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. Today, we are joined by Monty Moran, the former co-CEO of Chipotle. Thank you so much for coming on, Monty. Yeah, it's great to be here, Casey. Thanks for having me. So when, uh, when I first contacted you on Instagram, man, I just fell in love with your story on how you love culture and just your new book, Love is Free, Guac is Extra. It caught my attention. And for the people listening, I'd love to just start with, where did your journey with Chipotle begin? You know, you were the CEO managing a company with over 70,000 employees. Like, where did this first start? Yeah, well, I mean, it started because I was a lawyer, you know, and I had uh, been working actually in Los Angeles at a law firm downtown LA, right near where you are now. In fact, uh, before that, I was in Marina Del Rey at a law firm. So right where you are. And uh, a buddy of mine named Steve Ells, uh, back in Colorado, uh, I stayed in touch with him after college. And he had started Chipotle. So he was actually the founder. And uh, when I came back to Denver to practice law in Denver and, and raise a family, uh, he was working on getting the, or he had the first Chipotle open. And uh, I was a lawyer in a nearby law firm. And so he asked me to start doing some, uh, if I would be willing to do some lease work uh, okay. for Chipotle. And I said, sure. And I started doing leases. I did them on a really low flat fee. Actually probably lost a lot of money doing them because I, <laughs> I, quoted, I quoted way too low a fee. They took a long time. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, but it was cool. So I got to help out the company. And then he asked me to you know, get involved doing more and more and more different things for the company. And I got to know just about every, well, pretty much everybody in the corporate office because all of them had at one time or another some legal problem they needed help with. And then yeah. I became known as like the go-to guy who could solve legal problems. And then I then I ended up solving like a lot of other problems that weren't really legal problems. And I became sort of the go-to guy to solve like all kinds of problems. And so people, when they got in trouble or got, you know, to where they weren't sure what to do, they'd just call me. And so I became general counsel of Chipotle, um, you know, without initially having that title. And then a few years, you know, a year or two later, I actually um, got named the official general counsel of Chipotle. And I had a business card that was a Chipotle business card, even though by that time I was the CEO and, um, and managing partner of my law firm. So it was actually an employee wow. of, the law, of the law firm, but Chipotle had named me its formal general counsel. They asked me to come on board and be an employee. I said, no, because I love my law firm. But, yeah. I had a, but I had a business card uh, <laughs> at Chipotle too. So they kind of thought I was full-time over there. And I did, I did as much, I worked as hard as I could to prove to them that, that uh, to, to you know, make it seem like I was full-time at Chipotle. But really I had about 66 to 70% of my business that I was doing elsewhere. Yeah. So I was working really hard during those years. Yeah, for sure. And um, like for you, what, what made you make that pivot and that jump to go full-time with Chipotle? And, and real quick for the listeners, um, like what stage was that in Chipotle? Like how many restaurants did they have? How early was it when yeah, you were only, coming on board? Yeah, when I came on board and started doing leases, there, there was only eight restaurants. Wow. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was really early. And, um, and then I kept working with Chipotle in the meantime. Like I say, I was general counsel. Um, I started going to all of the board meetings. Um, Steve asked me to go to all the leadership meetings, which was, you know, sort of the top person from each um, uh, discipline in the company. So mm -hmm. I went to all the leadership meetings. Maybe that was a, that group was between 12 and 18 people, depending. Uh, and at the leadership meetings, I ended up taking uh, more and more of a leadership role. I just, I had a lot of opinions. I, 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 I can't help but voice them. I've got yeah. a loud voice. I got a loud voice. <laughs> um, <laughs> totally. right, right now it's a little weak because I've been talking a lot, but uh, usually I had a loud voice. Yeah. Anyway, so, so I started doing that and then Steve asked me to get involved in going to the board meetings. Uh, ultimately, I became secretary of the company, did all the minutes from the board meetings. And, uh, and, and at one point, uh, well, many times Steve started asking me, hey, 
you know, you know, why, why don't you come run this company? And th that happened actually after Steve had come over to my law firm and he loved the culture in my law firm. You yeah. know, so you talk about culture and that's my book talks about how I built the culture at that law firm. Totally. But, but Steve came over and, and saw the law firm and saw the culture that I had built there and said, how did you do this? This feels awesome. You know? And I would, I said, Oh, you know, it's just, you know, I don't know, you know? And he's like, no, no, I don't know. I mean, I want you to tell me, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I didn't, so I stopped blowing off, you know, his question and really sat down to try to answer him. And, and, uh, and so I answered how I built the culture at the law firm. And he was, he was like, wow, it's incredible. I love it here. People are really working hard, but they're stoked. They're having a great time. They're upbeat. They're ambitious. You know, they're curious. They're like really fun. They seem to love it here. Wow. Can you come do this at Chipotle? You know? And I, so I, like I say, I said no for about four and a half years. Wow. Um, I mean, you know, not no, like no, but like, wow, that sounds really cool. I'd love to, but God, I love what's going on here. And my firm was like doubling every year in size. And I became the CEO of the firm and I was doing really well. I was hiring a lot of associates. I was having a blast. I was, you know, I was kind of my own boss. Yep. And, and if I went over to Chipotle, I was concerned that I would ultimately have to work kind of for McDonald's because by that time, McDonald's had bought 87% of the stock in Chipotle. Wow. So I didn't really want to work for McDonald's, but uh, nonetheless, um, a fellow named Jeff Kindler, who at that time was the chairman of Chipotle's board, flew out, Steve asked him to, flew out and tried to convince me, hey, because he was a lawyer too. So he okay. used to be a law firm lawyer and he made the, the, the jump to go to McDonald's as McDonald's general counsel. And then eventually he went to go to Pfizer Pharmaceutical as its general counsel and then as its CEO. So Jeff is a real smart guy. I really respected him. He was super awesome. And he came out and basically tried to convince me, hey, you know, you ought to go to Chipotle and run yeah. it. You know, it's like being a lawyer is awesome, but you should go to Chipotle. And it's going to oh, be a chance for you to really to do a lot more. And then Steve, you know, um, he said something to me that, that really got into my ear. And he said, because I said, nah, you know, I kept saying, no, I'm a lawyer, though. You know, I'm a lawyer. Like, this is, a, you know, and he goes, okay, you, a lawyer is what you're doing, but a leader is what you are. Mm. If you come to Chipotle, you'll be able to use your leadership to guide and influence a lot more people. And it will help you leverage what's good about your leadership across a lot more people. And you're going to have a lot more power to help people's lives. And I thought, oh, wow, yeah. really? Hmm. So I thought about that for a bit and ultimately said, you know, okay, I'll do it. I love that. And yeah. I know you talk a lot about management and leadership. How do you see the difference between management and leadership in an organization? Yeah, to me, they're absolutely opposite approaches. <laughs> to me, one is really awesome and one is not good. So I'm a very, I'm very binary on this issue. Okay. Management is about getting someone to do something that you want them to do. You know, basically, go do it, you know. And all the management books, uh, there's a lot of management books and I haven't read sort of read them, but I've seen excerpts and I've seen articles. And most of what I read about management is people, you know, describing in all sorts of different words, the same thing. And that same thing is always how to put your foot up someone's butt, basically, but yeah. in different ways, you know, you know how, to, how to put your foot up their butt where they don't notice or how to put your foot up their butt where they like it or how to put your foot up their butt where they're having a good time, you know, whatever. So, but that's not what leadership's about. So leadership is about getting someone to do something, that, getting someone to do something that they want to do, which also happens to advance your cause. Okay, so what this involves is joining with somebody together as the leader and the person to be led. You join with them, you get to know them and understand them, you care about them, and you see what they're passionate about and what they can do beautifully well. And you help cultivate that in them such that they're doing something that they want to do, that they're awesome at, that they're passionate about, and that they're doing with all their heart, which also happens to advance your organization's cause. And that's true that. leadership. You know, that's what leadership is right. about. Yeah. I love that. And uh, like speaking of that, like leadership, one of my 
mentors was Larry King and um, rest in peace to him. But he always talked about being yeah. curious and asking questions. And you talk a lot about the importance of being curious and asking questions. Like how has that shaped your life and your career? Okay. Well, curiosity, Casey, has probably been the single biggest engine of my <laughs> enjoyment of life, the single bi- big, biggest engine of my success, the single biggest engine of, um, of sort of everything I've accomplished. It's been my curiosity. And, you know, curiosity uh, is a beautiful thing. Um, curiosity to me means, you know, sort of the willingness to put yourself in a subordinate position because what you really want is to understand. And you'll, you know, yep. no matter who I meet in life, Casey, I always find something in them to admire, like right away. In fact, I'll go further. I'll say whenever I meet someone, I'm almost always initially envious of one of their qualities or maybe, or maybe many of wow. their qualities. You know, right away, I'll be like, wow, this person, if I look at you, Casey, I'm like, wow, this guy's young and ambitious and like <laughs> has his shit together at a really early age and, and has a lot <laughs> of energy. You. And, you know, and I'll be like, that's cool. I really admire that about you, you know, but I can meet anyone and I find something to admire in them. And then I'm curious, like, how did they come to be that way? And I want to learn from them. So I look at everyone in the world as someone to learn from, you know what I mean? And that attitude. Yep. You know, I don't know, I've had that attitude so long, I can't really tell you where I got it. But I can tell you that I definitely got the, I definitely fanned the flames of that attitude when I worked at Dairy Queen when I was 15 years old. And we had these homeless people coming in all the time and sitting down and they would just get a cup of coffee. And they'd like get like six or eight creams and like 10 sugars, you know, and they're yeah. maximizing the caloric value of that cup of coffee. And these guys were a lot of them, guys and gals are men and women. A lot of them came over from a mental health facility that was nearby. And I just got really curious, like, wow, you know, cause I was a kid who, you know, came from a middle-class family and I knew where my next meal was coming from. And I basically had my, all my safety needs taken care of. My parents loved me, yeah. and all that stuff. Um, and, and I was like, wow, how do how does someone come to be homeless? you know, and alone in the Dairy Queen drinking a coffee. And so I just started sitting down with them. Hey, do you mind if I sit wow. down and, and get to know you? And, and when I asked, could I sit down? They would look up like, like, yeah, you know, <laughs> and then I would sit down and I would just, and I would just bring curiosity. So what does it mean when I say I brought curiosity? I sat down with, with the desire to know them you know, the desire to understand them, to see them, to value them. And what I've learned since, and I can say it much more clearly now than I would have when I was 15, because I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just curious. But now I can say, Casey, without a doubt, that I am certain that everyone in this world wants the same things. We all want to be seen, valued, loved, and understood. That's what all of us want. I mean, you know, we go about it a lot of different ways. Some people want to get really rich, but why do they want to get rich? They want to get rich so they feel seen, valued, loved, and understood, you know? Yeah. Um, why, some people want to be the best athlete in the world, like the, Usain Bolt, want to be the fastest runner in the world. Well, why? Well, because then everyone's going to know me and see me and value <laughs> me and understand me, right? Some people want to become like uh, a monk, you know? Oh, because I want to be seen, valued, loved. So it's really, that's what everyone wants. Um, but the, what's significant about that statement, it's not just academic, okay? What's significant is when I sat down with those people at Dairy Queen, I wanted to see, know, value, and understand them. I did value them right away. I already valued them because I was curious. I wanted to learn from them. That meant I valued them. And then when I sat down, I really looked at them. I was very present with them, which meant I saw them. And then as soon as I started getting to know them, I felt compassion and, and a desire to understand them further, which is a form of love, of course. And, and so I was giving them that. So when I was there with them, just by sitting down and wanting to know them, they would open up to me and I became fast friends with these people. And it was yeah. an awesome experience. I learned a ton because they came from such different backgrounds than I did. And I learned so much. So from that point on, I mean, I was just always trying to learn all I could from everybody. That's amazing. And 
and I think it's so cool because I know like one of the most important practices that you talk about at Chipotle is your one-on-one interviews. And I find that so fascinating because Huge. I love doing interviews. I've had this podcast for three years. I've done over 300 with just high level entrepreneurs, awesome. but, but doing it for employees and for an organization, where did this practice come from? Because when I first heard about that in your book, it really intrigued me about like why you would spend so much time doing these one-on-one interviews. So like, where did that come from and how do you explain that? Yeah, I mean, I think it all sort of emanated from that Dairy Queen experience I told you about. And, and also that I had built this culture at the law firm where these people, where everyone, that we, they were all so excited to be part of what we were doing. They had a vision. Uh, they wanted to accomplish that vision. You know, so at Chipotle, the first thing I did when I went in there is actually the first thing I did when I started at Chipotle was some version of going, oh, shit, I'm president of Chipotle now. What do I do? <laughs> you know, um, and, what I, and what I very quickly figured out, Casey, is that the thing that I had to do, okay, I, unlike being a really good lawyer, when you're a good lawyer, you can just do shit well, right? You yeah. can try a case well. You can take a great deposition. You can, you know, you can go give a great closing argument. You can be good just by going and working and going home yeah. and working and selfishly working to be good, okay? But when you become a leader, you can't do that anymore. You know, you now have to leverage your power to work through other people. So why would, it, and, and this is a really important thing, I, and I know you've probably read this because I say it in the book, you know, the only source of a leader's power is that other people choose to follow that leader, okay? Kind of like Beauty and the Beast when she, you can't just demand someone love you, yeah. love me, goddammit, you can't do that, <laughs> right? It doesn't work. They can go, okay, yeah, hey, I love you, you know, but they don't, right? It's the same thing. You can't say, hey, you know, follow me. The only way you can get someone to follow you is if, number one, you have a great vision for them. In other words, you're saying, Casey, I want to take you somewhere. And the place I want to take you is awesome. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about where I'm going to take yeah. you. So that's number one. I've got to have a vision for you that you think is awesome, that you want to come along. And number two, you've got to believe not only is it a great place, but that following me is your best way to get there. Not a way to get there, the best way to get there. So I got to give you a great vision. And then I got to say, hey, Let's get there this way together. We'll go there. Follow me. Let's go. You know, now, if you choose to follow me, now I'm your leader. Okay. If you don't, I'm not period. So if you're going, if you want people to follow you, you've got to know them. You've got to care about them. You've got to understand them. You've got to know what they want. Well, hence the one-on-one interview. Okay. So when you're yeah. and, and at Chipotle, granted, I had 75,000 employees, uh, you know, uh, yeah. at, in t- like 2015, 16, my last couple of years, 75,000 employees. <laughs> well, okay. Can you get to know every employee? Well, n- no, you know, you can't get to know every employee, but you can get to know a lot of them. And I interviewed more than 20,000 people one-on-one. I had a wow. practice where every time I went to any restaurant, I'd sit down with everyone one-on-one. Really? Now, sometimes these conversations were pretty, pretty quick. You know, sometimes, Hey, how are you doing? Name's Monty. What's your name? Yeah. And, and it was pretty quick. You know, I got to know someone. I was like, right on, you know, and then sometimes I, it would be three hours. Yeah. And I had no, I had no agenda, my, except for I wanted to get to know them and understand them. Now, once I got to know and understand them, guess what happened? Number one, just by my desire to get to know them and understand them, what did that cause them to feel? Seen, valued, loved, and understood. Okay. So they felt like, wow, this dude's for real. Yeah. This company's for real. Like this guy actually cares about me because I did. It wasn't bullshit. By the way, you can't yeah. bullshit it. It, yeah. can't be, it can't be bullshit. It's got to be genuine. But I was present with them and I cared and I really wanted to understand and get to know them. And when I did, they thought, wow, this guy really cares. Okay, step one to wanting to follow me. You know, step two was I would make sure that they understood the vision. Hey, why, why are you here? What do you want to do at Chipotle? Like, you know, do you think it can get you there? Like, you know, yeah. hey, is this going to help you achieve your dreams? 
And they'd say, well, you know, I want to be a doctor someday. Cool, man. Well, awesome. You know, do you think that working at a Chipotle and learning to work in a team and really make each other better is something that you could probably use as a doctor? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, cool. Uh -huh. Well, that's going to happen here, man. And I can't, I can't wait to see how you blossom and develop at Chipotle towards becoming a doctor. That's great. Wow, cool, man. And then, you know, maybe that conversation ends, but I'd get follow up from that person or, or other people or their manager. And, and, you know, that person would believe, hey, man, this, even though I want to be a doctor, you know, this is the best place for me to be right now in my work towards becoming a great physician someday. Great doctor. Yeah. You know? So other people are like, hey, I want to be the CEO of Chipotle. I'm like, right on. I mean, hey, you came to the right place, you know, <laughs> yeah. but same thing. It's like, hey, how are you going to do that? How can I help you? You know, what do you need from me? So anyway, uh, you know, when I interviewed all those people, of course, word gets around. Hey, the guy cares. Hey, the guy, yeah. he's going to probably, he'll come, hey, he'll come talk to you. Hey, watch out. He's coming <laughs> to your story. He's going to say, really? Wow. Yeah. You know, so people would sit down, they'd be excited and, and, you know, they'd be kind of amazed that the CEO would sit down to talk to them one-on-one, -on -one. but what could be less amazing? I mean, if I'm, if I'm the CEO and I really care, why wouldn't I sit down with everyone? Yeah. So, yeah. When it comes to like, when you say like walking into these restaurants, was this something, was this something that you would do um, sort of, you'd walk into a restaurant and they would have no idea you were coming or was it, was it a lot of planned interviews? Cause you know, if I was working out at Chipotle and the CEO walks in and wants to talk to me, I'd be like, this is crazy. Right. It's like, what was yeah. the, like the normal typical um, well, type of it, interview and how did it go? Well, you know, at the beginning I did a lot of planned visits at the very okay. beginning, but then I thought, no, 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 I don't want to do this. I want them all <laughs> to be a surprise. Yeah. So I started never telling anyone I would just go to a restaurant and then I'd walk in, but they would recognize me in the parking lot usually. And I'd hear this roar, Oh my God, you know, yeah. and I'd walk in and people would run up and hug me because by that time, you know, the, the kind of culture I was building was well known to everyone. Everyone loved the culture. They loved being part of it. They felt that I really cared about them and wanted them to be at their best. They yeah. knew that I was committed to promoting 100% of our managers from within. They knew that I had created a career path whereby every single person could had, had very logical steps by which they could move into management positions. They knew that my goal for everyone we hired was to help them develop into the best person that they could be. And so they were stoked. And so they, and they related that that culture, they related that culture with me, you know? And so when they saw me, they were like, Oh my God, God. And they'd come up and give me huge hugs and they'd be in tears a lot of the times. And they want to take pictures and get selfies and yeah. autographs. That was really, really fun, you know, That's but incredible. also I would get to know them really, really well, you know, and usually in any given store by, by later in my career, I'd know one or two or three of them either because yeah. I had been to that store or because they'd come from another store. And so my reputation preceded me, you know, and so yeah. people were always glad to see me because I knew that I was there to help them. And I, and I think that that speaks so much about who you are and your character. And, uh, you know, you recommend hiring based on character and not necessarily education oh, experience. And, and I know that's such a important topic nowadays, right? You see Microsoft and all these different companies like doing the same thing. Like, why is that so important to you? And where did that philosophy come from as CEO? Oh, a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, when I was CEO of my law firm, I was trying to hire awesome associates who could do a great job for, for all these clients that I was bringing in and I didn't have time to do all the work. So, and I really cared about the clients. So I wanted to make sure the work was done really, really well. So I had to hire really, really good associates <laughs> totally. and then I had to train them. You know what I mean? And it was really, really hard work. Right. But what I, I learned from the school of hard knocks, I learned from failure. I learned from hiring some people that I really liked that I believed in who didn't end up being as driven as I'd hoped, who didn't care as much as I cared, who didn't even care about their own success as much as I cared about their success, you know? And so I had to let some people go and I didn't yeah. like it, you know? So I thought, well, how can I hire better? Like, what do I, what do I need to look for? So I don't ever have to fire someone again. You know, you hope that never happens, yeah. but it, it, you still, no one hires perfectly, but I got a lot better at hiring. And what I learned is that you, Casey, no matter how good you are, no matter how motiv motivated you are or how smart you are, you cannot teach someone certain things unless they've already learned them by the age of, let's say 10, eight yeah. or 10. You can't teach someone to be curious 
Actually, I think Larry King said that on your interview. I yeah. don't know if you can teach them. You can't teach someone to be curious. Yeah, you can't, you see, can't teach curiosity. You can't teach it. You can't teach someone to be smart. You know, you can, I mean, you can educate them. You can give them lessons, but you can't teach them to, and when, I, when I say smart, I mean like the lights on, someone's home, they're curious, they're wanting to learn, yeah. interested, you know what I mean? You can't teach someone to be presentable. You can't teach someone to uh, be hospitable. You can't teach someone to be uh, high energy. You can't teach someone to be infectiously enthusiastic. You can't teach motivation. You can't teach ambition. You got to hire for those things. However, however, when you get someone who's got the appropriate characteristic, and, and another thing, by the way, why hire for characteristics? Because you can't teach them. So you better hire for it. Okay. <laughs> Number yeah. one. Number two, oddly, and this is oddly, oddly, people with excellent characteristics do not expect to get paid for them. In fact, they usually don't even know they have them. But people with experience do expect to get paid for their experience, even though the experience <laughs> is more often than not, not valuable. Yeah. It's usually like, I mean, I'm not saying experience isn't valuable. I'm saying, but like, for instance, in my world at Chipotle, hiring someone with fast food experience would do more harm than good, right? Like fast food experience is usually leaning against the counter and not caring about your customers. I didn't yeah. want that. So anyway, um, but uh, yeah, so, but, but, but for experience, yeah, so don't hire for experience because you can teach it generally. I mean, if you need a Spanish interpreter, it's yeah. best they speak Spanish and English. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you know, if you need someone to program a computer, they need to know how to write code. Okay. But short of that, you know, the other characteristics are best to, are best to hire for um, because number one, you can't teach them. And number two, no one expects to be paid for them. So when you get someone with great characteristics and then you educate them and teach them to give them the experience, now you've got a hot shot. Now you've got someone who's going to be a great addition to your team. Yeah. Uh, I know you spoke on this earlier, but like when you came on board of Chipotle, I'm very curious myself, you know, starting with eight restaurants and then having 75,000 employees. Like if you were to keep it simple with the audience, like what changed through that period of time and growth? Like, was that the plan from the beginning? Did you say, hey, when I come on board, we want to set out to be the most loving and compassionate organization and have 70,000 employees? Or like what was the vision when you came on board to getting it to this multi-billion dollar Fortune 500 enterprise? Well, I mean, I certainly believed that Chipotle could be very large and very successful and, nation, and, 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 and nationwide and even internationally uh, successful. So I believed that, but that wasn't really my vision. I thought that, I thought that would just happen. It's sort of <laughs> like if you go run really hard every day, you're going to get more fit, right? Yep. You don't have to worry about how much more fit. You're going to get more fit, right? So it's the same thing. At Chipotle, I, I, from day one, I wanted to build a, a culture of all top performers who were empowered to achieve high standards. I wanted our culture to be awesome. I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be exciting. I wanted it to be just like the culture at my law firm. And so when I set about doing that, the first thing I wanted to do is I told everyone, hey, everybody, you know, my vision for this company is that we will have a team, Chipotle wide, of all top performers who are empowered to achieve high standards. Let me tell you what it, top performers and empowerment means. High standards is easy. It means things are good. That's easy. Yeah. But the other two definitions are really important. And no one thinks about it this, this way. Okay. Number one, top performers, top performer. I defined it as meaning someone who has the desire and ability to perform excellent work and through their constant effort to do so elevates themselves, the people around them and the whole organization, Chipotle in this case. Okay. So if you break that definition down, cause it's kind of wordy, two pieces does what they do excellently and does it in a way to make others better. 
Okay, so Chipotle wasn't, wasn't good enough just to be great at what you did. Not good enough. You had to be great at what you did and make others better. Okay, why is this so important? Well, for a million reasons. But number one, in a growing organization, you need to teach others. You need to get the benefit of everyone who's excellent to make the people around them better. So we started making every promotion, every raise, um, you know, every performance review, um, every personnel decision based on does this person make people better more powerfully than the other candidates who were considering for the promotion. And so that was number one, the top performer. Number two was empowerment. Empowerment, and I wrote a definition for empowerment that I'm very proud of because it was so helpful. Empowerment means feeling. So first of all, it's a feeling. Again, you can't make someone have it any more than, right? So empowerment means feeling confident in your ability and encouraged by your circumstances such that you feel motivated and at liberty to fully devote your talents to a purpose. So again, two pieces, confident in your ability, encouraged by your circumstances. In order to empower someone on your team, you must do those two things. You have to make sure they're confident in their ability and encouraged by their circumstances. Now, again, the problem is almost everyone spends all their time on confident in your ability, and that's the easy part. That's training someone, you know? So you train them how to do a job, and now they're confident in their ability to do that job. Yep. But what people fall down on all the time, and that's why they're managers, not leaders, is they fail to cause someone to feel conf- uh, excuse me, encouraged by their circumstances. How do you make someone feel encouraged by their circumstances? And obviously, as you know, I describe this in detail in the book, exactly how to do this. But in short, someone will feel confident in their circumstances when they have a vision and when they know that their boss or leader cares about them, sees them, values them, loves them, understands them, wants them to be at their best, will challenge them, and will stop at nothing to make them the very best they can be. And that's encouraging circumstances. And you can say, most of us, if we didn't have parents who caused us to feel encouraged by our circumstances, and many of us didn't, but we might have had a stepfather, stepmother, or a coach, or a pastor at a church, or just another person in our life who made us feel encouraged by our circumstances. But picture that person. What did they do? Someone who made you feel really encouraged by your circumstances wasn't someone who just said, hey, Casey, I love you no matter what. You're great. Now, they did love you no matter what, and they did think you're great. But they wouldn't let you be less than you can be. They wouldn't sit idly by if you wasted your life. You know, if you yeah. treated you, if you didn't uh, stay healthy, if you didn't, uh, you know, work towards your dreams, you know? So someone who makes you confident, encouraged by your circumstances is someone who is like, kind of like, they're so interested in you that they're not going to rest until you're great. Yeah. I love that. And I know you're bringing up your new book. I want to ask you, where did this idea to write your new book? Um, because not only did I love it, but I think the, the importance of what you're teaching is so important for leaders and CEOs and anyone Thank that's you. looking to start a business. So like love is free. Guac is extra. Number one, I'm curious, where did the title come from and why did you pick that? And then number two, like, what are you excited about with your book? Okay, cool. All right. Well, the title, I got to give all the credit away. David Chrisman, who you worked with to set up this call. Yep. David came, David came up with the title, uh, Guac is extra. Love is free. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Isn't it like, I don't know. Because <laughs> I was going to name it something. Like, I was going to name it. It wasn't like, oh, legacy of love or something. And, okay. uh, and, and the guy's like, yeah, it's good. But it's like, people are like, it's too general. You know, and I'm like, yeah, that's true. You know? Anyway, so guac is extra. Love is free. And then my, my um, son, Michael Moran, his, his buddy, Johnny Garcia, is walking through the house one day. And Johnny goes, hey, Monty. Hey, Johnny. He goes, oh, what's that? It was a mock-up of the cover. Okay. Guac is extra. Love is free. And he goes, is that the title? And I go, yeah. And he goes, I go, what do you think? He goes, it's cool. Should probably reverse it though. And he walks away. So I thought about it for like a week and I go, David, you know, Johnny walked by and said, love is free, go out his extra. And David right away is like, that's better. You know? And so that was it. Totally. So, the, I, so I can't take credit for the title. <laughs> I, I like it, but I can't take any credit for it. I, none at all. Um, the book, why did I write it? 
um, that wasn't my idea. You know, everyone at Chipotle, I mean, man, it's like almost everyone's like, dude, you got to write a book, man. You got to put these ideas down. You know, yeah. I mean, even my ex-wife, you know, she was always on me to write a book. You know, you got to write yeah. a book. Wow. These are great. So people were always asking me to do that. And when I left Chipotle and retired and had some time, the first thing I wanted to do is get my pilot's license, which I did. And then I got my instrument rating so I could fly up high and in clouds and all that. I uh, got an airplane and started flying around. That was really fun. Um, but, but then I had time, you know, and people kept saying, hey, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I thought, you know, I should write a book. And so, and so I wrote it. And I wrote it really, really fast. And it took a while to edit it because it was way too long. <laughs> um, you know, there was so much that I cut yeah. out, of it, but uh, to try to make it. And the reason I cut it down so much is I wanted it to be super, super helpful, super crisp, super not boring, flow really well. And, and I wanted it to take people on a journey that they could repeat. You know, I didn't want to write just to say what I had done. I wanted to write stuff that, would, that, that I would love to have had myself when I was 16, 18, 25, 30, and beginning, you know, my career. Because um, the stuff I put in the book, you know, it is stuff that you can use and will make your business or your, your relationships or your communication way, way, way better. Because, you know, I talk about communication, right? Yeah. I talk about the specifics of running a business and the things that work and don't work. I talk about empowerment. I talk about top performers. I talk about the five steps of empowerment, how to empower a team, and then how to know when you're blowing it. And I also talk about developing yourself as an individual, because the first thing you have to do as a leader is be someone worth following. If you're not worth following, to hell with the rest of it. You know, <laughs> totally. So, I love that. You know, yeah, I love it. Um, speaking of pilot's license, you, you have a docu series that yeah. I am super excited to you know put out there and be a part of when it comes to getting people's eyes turned towards it. But Thank what is you. this docu series that you're putting out, and why is it so important to you? Yeah. Well. Okay. So when I left Chipotle, and. Uh, my friend, uh, David Gottlieb, this guy who worked for me at, at Chipotle, he said, you know what you should do in that new, with that new pilot's license of yours? You love flying and you love people. You know, why don't you fly around the country? He goes, and just interview people. He goes, you're so good at bringing people out and getting their wisdom, like, you know, from them. You know, why don't you just get a camera, put it over your shoulder and do that? Well, it's a little more complicated than putting <laughs> a camera over your shoulder, but that's exactly what we did. And so we, you know, um, decided let's do this docuseries. And David Chrisman, who you met with uh, and who set this show up between you and I, uh, you know, he, he has been, you know, quarterback on helping put this whole thing together and get me out there. And then I, I get in that plane with him and we got a film crew and we fly out to places and, and have gotten to know incredible people who come from really different backgrounds than any of us, you know, yeah. um, the Blackfoot nation in Alberta, Canada, the highest crime, the highest rate of teenage uh, pregnancy, um, suicide, poverty, drug addiction they've got a lot of statistics that no one would envy in that in the blackfoot nation in alberta and and so i was like but but is that the whole story well the answer is no it's not the whole story they're brilliant people with incredible knowledge and wisdom with unbelievable uh you know helpful wisdom to share with all of us and that all of us can and should learn from you know likewise went to philadelphia northern philadelphia a place called kensington's known as the badlands for being the largest open-air drug market in the united states wow. incredible place man i mean you can, i mean you can go buy any drug you want and there's and there aren't police there i mean there are police there but they don't really crack down on it because it seems to be contained to that area um, and um, a lot of people told me that it's intentionally contained in that area. As wow. long as people don't go north, south, east, or west, they'll take it easy. Well, the problem is, you know, you got kids who are exposed to that. You know, you've got uh, adults who are exposed that don't want to be involved. But every kid there grows up in this incredible, very difficult environment. They struggle. And through their struggles, what happens? Well, like anyone who struggles, and this is one of the biggest things I learned through this docuseries, anyone who struggles mightily with any issue and overcomes it learns a tremendous amount develops wisdom, develops 
knowledge, develops character, gets stronger for it. I mean, struggle is an incredibly underrated and highly valued, you know, thing for someone to go through in their life. Uh, we should all embrace our struggles because they teach us and they guide us to a much better place. But anyway, uh, incredible people in Northern Philadelphia. What a wonderful community it ends up being filled with brilliant people again. Then we went to Laredo, Texas to a border town and same thing, beautiful, incredible people with amazing stories that all of us can learn from. Then we went to Appalachia, highest opioid uh, uh, deaths in anywhere in the country, lowest um, income anywhere in the country. So the most poverty, the most government checks in, in McDowell County, West Virginia. Wow. So what do we expect to find? Well, you know, the, the the uh, what do you call it stereotypes of that area are that there's people you know there's a lot of uh, you know what there's people aren't that educated you know maybe they're backward all that stuff no they're brilliant they're incredible they've gone through amazing struggle they're beautiful people they can teach us how to love each other better how to help each other better um, how to get through hardship together uh, and, and as individuals and brilliant people up to Maine to meet the lobster fishermen we went to uh, uh, you know Brunswick Georgia to meet with the family and the community where Ahmad Arbery was killed unbelievable people we met and so wow. yeah so it's just incredible and the thing ended up so much better than i ever could have imagined and for the sole reason that the people we met were brilliant and have so much to share and people always say where'd you find these people and the answer was you don't have to look hard this country is filled with brilliant people filled with brilliant i people. love that yeah it's awesome uh, martin before we wrap up here just I'm so intrigued by the docuseries, but also just your story and everything that you have been a part of. Like, what is your advice to a young entrepreneur today that's either starting their first business or looking to build a global enterprise? If you were to just keep it simple and, you know, give them a tactical piece of advice that they can take away today from this interview, what advice would that be and why? Okay. Okay. I'm going to start with something that may not seem that exciting, but it's very important. Feel what you're excited about. Like find what you're excited about. Do not ever do what you should do. People always ask the question, what should I do? Forget should. It's not should. Life is not a race. If it were a race, what happens to all of us? We die. So why race to get to be dead? Okay. Enjoy like whatever you're doing right now, value it, be grateful for it because whatever you're doing right now, is teaching you something huge. There's a chapter in my book called, you know, my minimum wage MBA. And I call it my minimum wage MBA because my minimum wage jobs taught me a ton. They were awesome. You know, so if you are in a dead end job, no, you're not. There's no such thing as a dead end job. Take it seriously. Give your best to it. Work hard at it. Try to excel so that you're better. So that you're the best you could possibly be in that position. Make other people better. And guess what? That will be noticed. You'll notice it and feel good. The people around you will notice it and feel good. Customers will notice it and feel good. And you'll get plucked to do something greater, bigger, and more. And then when you do that thing that's greater and bigger than more, do it with all your heart. Do it with all your might. And do not consider it a stepping stone. Don't consider any part of your life a stepping stone. Just consider it what you're doing with all your heart and all your might right now. Number one. Number two, don't try to make money. The people who try to make money as their goal don't make money. That's the problem. Maybe it'd be great if you could try to make money and you make money. But when you try to make money, you tend not to make money. Or, I mean, so the thing that makes you make money is to not have that as your primary goal, but to have as your primary goal to deliver some huge value to others through a service or a piece of equipment or a, or a product or whatever, you know? So if you want to invent, you know, 
you want to invent like a device that really helps people, you might make some money from it. This person yeah. did. Um, <laughs> you know, if you want to invent like a, a drinking bottle that has a lid that you can close really easy and doesn't leak, hey, that helps people. You know, there's products all over the place that help people. Invent something that helps people or give a service that really helps people and do it with all your might and do it because you love it and do it because you want to provide that service and do it because it excites you. And when you're excited, guess what happens? You attract other people who will also be excited, who will also see your vision, who you can then empower to form a team. And now you become a leader and you have a team. And guess what? They'll have ideas. And then you can add those to the portfolio of things that you're doing as a leader. And boom, it explodes. You will have success. And there will be more money flying at you than you ever could imagine. And it will not be the most important thing that money is flying your way. What will be the most important thing is that you have, through your efforts, made other people better. You've done something to help other people. And that's what's going to be exciting. I love more that. than anything else. I love that, Monty. And again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. For those that have listened to this interview, where is the best place that they can go to learn more about the book, purchase the book, and also watch the docu-series? Because I know that they have impacted my life and I'm looking forward to everyone listening today to be a part of it. Awesome. Thank you, Casey. Well, go to loveisfree.com. I was amazed how we got that. So we, <laughs> love, loveisfree.com. I think it was $16. Wow. Yeah. Talk so about a great get, domain. <laughs> I know, right? Loveisfree.com. So go to loveisfree.com and there you'll be able to buy the book, you know, read, you know, see the book. Um, you'll be able to see uh, a little bit of a trailer for each of the six episodes of the docuseries, which is showing on PBS nationwide right now at different times in different parts of the country because there's many different PBS member stations. Um, but there's also a button at the very bottom where you can click on it and it will tell you where the, uh, the docuseries is playing in your area, what channel, what time. Okay? Love it. Well, Monty, thank you so much again for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure having you on and I'm looking forward to just seeing the excitement about your book moving forward, man. So thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Casey. And, and congratulations on all you're doing. You're doing great stuff and you're an exciting kid. And uh, I don't mean that in a condescending <laughs> way. I actually mean that in a very complimentary way. You're young thank and you. doing great things and good for you, man. We'll look forward to your continued success. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you.